Massive attack there, safe from harm. You are an in-your-face on 3CR with James. Well, The Dream Life of Georgie Stone, a fabulous documentary, has been released. And I do have Georgie and the director, Maya Newell, on the line. Welcome to 3CR. Thanks Lovely for having us. It's such a fantastic documentary and uh, it's a beautifully woven emotional tapestry uh, and so informative, Georgie. It explores your activism, uh, but also your journey around gender affirmation surgery as well. Uh, and the thing that struck me is you've always been an activist. Yeah. Um, trans lives, trans bodies are politicised whether we like it or not. So really for my own well-being and survival, I've had to fight for myself and my family has had to fight for me like so many other trans people have. So, yeah, it's been a really, really long journey in activism. And uh, Maya, how did you and Georgie meet? Tell us the backstory about how you got together to direct this amazing documentary. Well, it's it happened over a long period of time, really. Um, I met Georgie when she was 14, which was, um, yeah, eight years ago now, which is a long time. Um, and, yeah, just coming off the back of my first feature, uh, Gaby Baby, um, I was really interested in the plight of trans and gender-diverse young people who were really being used as political fodder um, so often. And uh, the children in Gaby Baby were also talked about so much and rarely were listened to. Uh, and I saw the power of what documentary and storytelling um, did. You know, the kids in Gaby Baby really spoke truth to power and really inserted the narratives of children of queer families into the marriage equality debate, which, you know, uh, was obviously eventually won. So I reached out to Georgie and her mum, Beck, um, from Transcend Australia, and just wanted to learn more. And I think, you know, that's what began a really long, collaborative, explorative journey um, and creative journey as well with Georgie as my co-collaborator um, to tell this beautiful story that just landed on Netflix today or yesterday. It really is something to be very proud of. And, and Georgie, what really struck me was uh, you've been fighting pretty much all your life uh, for bodily autonomy for trans kids. And the documentary really explores the law reform fight that you have led as a, as a trailblazer. How's that impacted on you? It's been a really tumultuous journey. I mean, through advocacy, I've met some really wonderful and inspiring people, and that includes Maya. So I suppose one of the positives of the experience is that I have connected with and learned from so many incredible people. Because, you know, I I wasn't alone in this fight. Um, uh, I'm really glad I could be a, a small part of the wider collective of people who were advocating and, you know, standing on the shoulders of the incredible trans people who came before me. Um, but at the same time, it's been really traumatic. I've I've been faced with people and opinions and circumstances that have left me, you know, exposed and, and open to bullying and harassment. And, you know, also, I, I was a teen for, for a lot of that advocacy, and I'm 22 now, and it's a time in my life where I, I should be, you know, going out and partying with my friends, you know, being young, but I feel so exhausted and tired because I've been fighting, as you say, basically my whole life. So it's been a really up and down experience, but I'm really proud that the film 
was able to convey a lot of that and um, record the history so so it's not forgotten. You must feel like a very old soul. (laughs) (laughs) I know, 22. Yeah, I know. Georgie's already got an OAM at 22. I mean, what's what's ahead? Um, (laughs) I I do want to add in as well that, like, while the film, of course, is um, about... Georgie's incredible um, political fight and activism um, when we were having conversations early on. It's also just about what it is to be human and to grow up and to, you know, fall in love and have a um, supportive family and to play dress-ups in the backyard with your, with your, you know, with your family growing up. And also, you know, I know that Georgie, for a long time, she was like, I I just want to make a film as well that is not you know, my whole identity is not only defined by my transness. And so the film is also just a really beautiful, artful weave of growing up and definitely a childhood under siege from the outside, but, you know, also a, a beautiful a beautiful life that sort of, you know, you can, you can connect with and that resonates with everybody. Yeah, it really is a beautifully woven tapestry. And you must have found like you had hit the jackpot and discovered these absolute gems with those amazing videos of uh, Georgie as a child speaking to the camera. Uh, That must have been a a delight as a filmmaker. Absolutely. And I think it was only a couple of years in that um, I found out that there was this beautiful trove of home movie footage that had been shot consistently over years by Georgie's um, dad and mom, And, yeah, I mean, it is a filmmaker's delight. But also, you know, I think archives can teach us so much, uh, particularly about the topic of, um, you know, exploring trans young people and their lives. Um, we've got, you know, the consistency of self of Georgie and her family is just really, really beautiful um, of Georgie growing up, you know, at age four and age five and age you can just see this young person who's saying, this is who I am. Can you please listen to me? I'm just waiting patiently for the world to catch up. Georgie, I loved your mum in the, in, the, in the documentary and how she described herself as being like a landmine detector. Yeah, yeah, and, and she really was. She's been one of my biggest advocates and, and she has... You know, and, and my whole family have been really protective of me and looked after me. And, you know, that's what every young person deserves. That's what every trans person deserves. And um, unfortunately, a lot of trans kids don't get that. But um, I think it was really important for my mum to let it be known that if you have a trans kid, you should be going above and beyond to protect them. Absolutely. And your dad and your brother as well, you know, are obviously incredibly supportive. You must feel that as an activist, you couldn't have done it without them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But not even as an, as an activist, just as a person, just as a, as a child. I, what is so important, I think, for people to know that having, as a trans kid, having the support of your family is, is life-changing, is so important because it unlocks the future for us where we can, you know, not only be ourselves but, uh, you know, pursue the things we want to pursue and feel safe in our own lives and have agency over our own lives. And the, the support of a family and, you know, friends and doctors it, it, and, you know, society as a whole, that makes 
such a big difference. So I, it's not lost on, on me how important they have been to allowing me to live my life safely and with agency. And you mentioned doctors, of course, your doctor, Michelle, who are uh, featured in the documentary. What a great support uh, she was as well, and still is, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, she is. She's a, an incredibly wonderful human and, and someone I look up to very much, and the work she does is is so important. I think um, what I've, I've learned so much, obviously, about um, gender-affirming healthcare. Uh, in the making of this documentary and it's really exciting that the film is you know out worldwide on Netflix but it is actually showcasing Victoria and the Royal Children's Hospital has been world leading in terms of gender affirming healthcare for young people and that's really something to celebrate and also to spread um, and Michelle Dr Michelle Telfer has you know led a lot of that incredible work um, and I'm really glad that it can have this world, you know, platform so that other trans young people and medical systems overseas can see and research what we're doing here in Australia. Yeah, it really lays a blueprint, doesn't it, for law reform uh, in other parts of the world. And I imagine uh, it will achieve that. We hope so. We hope everyone's listening. <laughs> So, Georgie, when you look back on the on the documentary, I mean, that must have been a pretty emotional experience for you watching it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I think it was, it was a very cathartic experience, and something that was interesting watching it in front of other people. We were lucky enough to have a few festival screenings before the release yesterday. Um, what was really um, interesting was watching other people watch the film. Because, you know, at that point, I, you know, I sat in on the editing process. I was a creative producer on the film. So I'd seen it a lot of times and, and uh, helped my work on it. But to watch other people watching the film was really interesting. And I was able to kind of look at it from a fresh lens. Um, and so that was really wonderful and quite um, cathartic. It's a really beautiful film. I'm really proud of Maya and the whole team. There are so many people who worked on this film for so long. Um, so I'm really proud of everyone. Yeah. Tell us about some of the other people involved. Oh, um, so many. Of my <clears throat> I can jump in. Um, we were really lucky to have the hand of Closer Productions and there's actually three producers. There's Sophie Hyde, um, Lisa Sherrard and Matt Bates, who are all kind of creatively involved um, and also the amazing editor, Brian Mason, who really needs a bit of... Um, uh, notes here because it's really an editor's film for those who don't know. It's not really like a linear, you know, one scene after the other telling Georgie's life. It's uh, a non-linear kind of study in memory and we fall through Georgie's memories, her elliptical memories um, of all of the moments that have made her as she's passing through this kind of new chapter and coming of age of leaving school and entering the world and emerging into adulthood. Um, and I think that, you know, we've had lots of conversations about identity and fragmentation and, you know, what that could look like and feel like in a film and how to uh, bring people close to Georgie's essence uh, and not get sort of bogged down with data and information or, you know, logical timelines. So that was like a really beautiful journey to go on with, with Brian Mason and, and Matt Dayton, Sophie Hyde, who were, you know, really key in um, coming up with that sort of style. 
And it all flows so beautifully and it looks like it's just so natural. But I mean, there must have been so much work to get it to that point and so much idea processing. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of footage. There's like, you know, all the footage, all the archive and then, you know, trying to condense six years of filming into a into a, into a 30-minute film. I mean, I think that it really, you really do flow through 19 years of George's life in 30 minutes. Um, which I didn't think was possible, but I think, um, yeah, it's a really beautiful attempt at capturing the, the some key moments of, in that time. So you two were working on this documentary together for six years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> More. So we met in 2014, so now it's 2022, so it's been eight years. Um, we finished filming just before COVID and then we were in the editing process, late 2020, early 2021, Um so, yes, yes, it was a very collaborative process um, built on a lot of trust and, and um, something that was important for me was that I've, I've told my story many times, but I've never actually been in control of the way it was presented. It's always been, you know, in other, another person's lens or, you know, it's kind of out of my hands the way this story was told. So this was a very empowering experience because it was the first time in my life I had that agency and it was, I, I knew my, made it very clear that nothing would go in without my consent um, and it was a really wonderful process and I really gained a, a real passion and respect for filmmaking behind the camera um, as well as in front of the camera. So um, I owe a lot of that to Maya. Yeah, it's a wonderful oh, metaphor, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the film's about bodily autonomy so much, but also <laughs> there's the autonomy of you having control over what, what went into the film and how you told your own story. Yeah, well, yeah. I, think, I think film is about autonomy on a broader scale. It's not just about my body. That's a big part of it, absolutely, and that's a lot of the advocacy that we were doing, but it really is about autonomy and, and the coming of age journey from childhood to adulthood and... and um, having control of my life finally. So it is better in a sense the filmmaking process reflects the story um, over the years. But I also suppose that the film, in a way, is showing the filmmaking process because we were making it as we went. Yeah, and I think that that's right. You can't, we can't make stories about agency and autonomy um, walk alongside, you know, these creative journeys with people who have, you know, been traditionally marginalised and pushed out of that narrative-making process without doing that work ourselves as, as filmmakers. And I think it's worth saying that, you know, the status quo in documentary is not to involve the people whose stories are being represented on screen in that creative process. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm also just really proud um, of the way that we've pushed the film out and, you know, the confidence and, you know, beautiful relationship and trust that, you know, was built with Georgie over the years. Um, and it's worth saying as well, like, oh, we really have a lot of respect for Netflix and the way that um, they came to the creative party, always centering uh, Georgie's experience and her uh, creative input. Um, we actually even walked away from a, a few distribution partners who couldn't offer a similar um, sense of respect. So, 
it's been a very long journey um, to tackle this issue of agency autonomy, both creatively and behind the screen, uh, in, in terms of how we made it. So, Georgie, what's next for you? Um, well, um, there's, we're really focusing on the impact campaign that is running alongside this film, which is very exciting. But um, also I'm developing a TV show um, idea that I um, came up with during lockdown. So I'm getting into a writer's room for that later in the year, which is very exciting. I'm just trying to broaden my horizons in any way I can. So writing is something new. Um, which I'm very excited to learn about and undertake. But, um, yeah, so I'm doing that and um, also taking a break. I just finished three years on Neighbours, which has been massive. So I'm trying to, um, you know, start doing the things that I said that I wanted to do in the film, which is just finally live my life for for me, um, which has been a long time coming. And tell us about the impact campaign. That sounds incredibly empowering as well. Sure. Um, yeah, so we're really, we're really lucky to have, um, you know, been working in parallel to the Netflix release. With um, if you go to our website, which is dreamlifefilm.com, there's a number of take actions so audiences can learn about and get behind um, some of the calls for expansion and increased funding for gender affirming care um, all around Australia. Um, there's the backing of a Dream Life Youth Committee who were putting out a beautiful zine, which is written by and for trans, gender-diverse, non-binary young people, um, which is really about amplifying their voices and celebrating the diversity of experiences and, and making young people just feel good. Um, and then I suppose it's really just about sharing the film. So if you've listened to this today and you'd like to maybe host a watch party of the film, there's discussion guides and number of resources, recorded panel discussions that you can watch and have your friends over and open a discussion. Because uh, we really think that change happens, you know, in the nuances of language and in conversations with, with friends and family. Absolutely. Well, you both should be very proud of the dream life of Georgie Stone. It is available now on Netflix. Georgie and Maya Newell, thank you so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. And here's Patty Smith.
Rhythmics there. Who's that girl? You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, earlier this year, I had the pleasure of chatting with legendary gay performer Doug Lucas. Doug, where do we start with you? First of all, how are you? 
Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, where do you start? It's a big story. <laughs> Look, it really is. Let's go back to 1975 when you established Melbourne's first gay disco. What was the backstory to that happening? Well, I'll just give you a quick history before that. Jan used to run a, a couple of gay bars back in the early days. This Jan Hilly was my partner from Pokies. She wanted an overflow bar because Menzies Tavern was um, was getting too full. And I said, look, I'd, I'd run it so long as it was a guy's only bar because I'd, everything was a bit more um, sheltered, secluded in those days. She didn't want people from work turning up for a drink and getting sprung. So um, I got the DJ that used to work at the... Um, the Dover originally, like the bars had background music, but they were never dance bars, and it sort of started a little bit there. But then a friend said to me, "Look, John Barry's got this hotel in Carlton, in North Carlton, and he's um, wondering whether you could sort of make something of it, you know, get the crowd there." And and I said, "All right." Um, so that was my thing. Disco was just starting out. I I love black music, you know, Tamla Motown, all that sort of stuff, which was just really starting to become quite big. Um, and um, I thought, well, I'll do this. I'll do it, guys, only. The dance floor used to be packed. Um, my lighting system at that stage was like six para flood lights that were attached to a, a three-channel mixer. Like I said, it was guys only. Back in those days, you'd have the Leather Queens arriving with, the, with like a, a sports bag and they'd go down the back of the toilets and get changed into their leather. This is back in the days of the tambourines and the whistles and doing dances like the bump and the hustle. And um, it, was, it was just a great place to go. You didn't have to worry about, like I said, being sprung. There was nothing to attract straight people. It was in a quiet street. The um, old police station was opposite, but there was actually a breathalyzer used as a breathalyzer headquarter, and um, they had no qualms about us working there. And the police generally were pretty good, you know. I mean, there were hyperphobic ones around, but they actually preferred that we had a place that we could mingle instead of them going out, you know, um, doing reports about people being bashed up in straight pubs or outside pubs or whatever. So, and also in those days, there was a certain safety in numbers mentality, but. Um, I just tried to offer people what I'd like to go to myself and I ran that for about four years until we started Pokies. It must have had a great community feel and the community must have been so relieved to have that safe space. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, look, there were previous gay bars earlier. I mean, the Prince of Wales always had a gay bar. The Woolshed Bar at the Australia Hotel had one that was down, down below street level, but, I mean... They always had a lot of crims hanging me too in those days, guys, and crims used to sort of be virtually herded into the one place. Um, and when I first came onto the scene in um, late 1970, the Sathya Arms was really rocking. That was a pub that used to be on the corner of Chapel and Turak Road, and that was bumping because Maisie's Hotel, which was a Majesty's, was up further, was um, being renovated. But... I mean, basically, it was a place people used to go to coffee lounges in those days or have parties in their private homes. So, um, yeah, it was good. It was great. I, mean, I got to meet so many people. And I think that's when that community sort of sense we weren't like people just on the outside looking in. Although, in those days, you did live two lives. You did one when you were out with your friends where you could scream and hoot and holler and, you know, be at camp if you wanted to be. And then at work, you'd have to um, play the straight role. <laughs> so, you mentioned... That's how it was in those days. I mean, you know, not like today. You couldn't walk down the street holding hands or show any public affection. Um, 
Yeah, like I said, it was a bit like an underground movement, you know. So. Absolutely. And it was kind of an exciting time, but a dangerous time to be gay. I mean, the word queer didn't really exist in terms of our community, did it? No, well, I pitied the ones who went through the 40s, the 50s, and the, the early 60s. I think they had a much harder time, I think. In the late 60s, there was that sexual revolution that hit Australia and people were sort of coming out a bit more. People were knowing more about gay people. There wasn't maybe so much ignorance attached, but there was still a lot of homophobia out there. I mean, people thought they could have a right to come up and just punch you in the face if they thought you were gay. You know, I mean, something that I've never ever understood was that why straight people were so sort of hung up on gay people or what gay people do in their bedrooms. You know, it's just... I think it's amazing. We're all the same. I mean, we think the same. We breathe the same air. We it's just that we have um, partners of our own sex. But I mean, that's our business. I don't know what it's got to do with anybody else. But but I mean, I've always believed in that. You know, I've never felt that I'm pursuing anything wrong. I suppose I was proud and gay without sort of realising that. You know, I just thought I'm a nice person. I don't need this shit. I'm not going to let people put me down. I I believe I'm doing the right thing and. I was quite prepared to stand my ground and go, well, this is who I am and this is what I do. You know, I could hardly be making a living out of the, the gay scene and being ashamed of it. We um, went on TV once, they did a thing in the, um, what was the Australian, Financial Review. Somebody was thinking of setting up a gay gravel, um, sorry, a gay travel group and they did interviews for us on current affairs and whatever else and that was a bit of an eye-opener to some people, but... Um, I certainly didn't have a problem standing up there and saying that we had just as much right to our own exclusive clubs as, say, like a Polish club or a Catholic club or a soccer club or a... that really wasn't any different, you know. It wasn't people thinking there was some big orgy going on. Did the community call itself a gay community in 1975 when you set up that oh, first... Oh, we were camp. You were camp, we were exactly. We camp, yeah. So when did gay yeah, become yeah, a term? I'm not quite sure where that came from originally, but we weren't gay. Gay's a word that came in a bit later. I don't know whether that came from America or, or not. It was one of those words that was a bit ambiguous, but you go, oh, that's so can't, you know. And now, like, we can say that's so gay, but if you put that comment up on Facebook, they bloody do it as hate speech because a few of the yobs and the hedgehogs out there use it as a derogatory term. I mean, it's getting to the stage that our dialogue's big taken away from us. But, you know, I mean, we had magazines called Camp. You know, they, they were just, it was early days of everything. The whole scene was just blooming. And uh, this was not long after um, Stonewall. Now, so, for those who didn't know the history of Stonewall, that's just when the pages of these gay bars, in, uh, the gay bar in America had got fed up. The, the police were being paid off by the mafia that used to run the bars. And it was just after Judy Garland had died, and she was quite a gay icon there. Um, the police were there doing another routine raid, and the drag queen's gone, look, you know, leave us alone. We're dealing, dealing with this emotional thing. We don't need this shit. And they took the police on, and that was basically the birth of the gay movement. Australia was a little bit different, but, I mean, a lot of Australians still had that attitude of live and let live, you know. They didn't sort of mind it so long as it wasn't compulsory. <laughs> I think it used to be the attitude back in the day that, um, I mean, obviously they've grown up a lot since then, but everything's a lot more open too. It's not so so guarded or shielded. You started the legendary Pokies in late 1977, once again a partnership with Jan Hillier. First of all, how did you meet Jan? 
I was going out with a guy that lived in the same block as Slats as Jan. Um, he lived upstairs and he went and he was having a dinner party one night and I'd arrived Jan <laughs> this is so true. I'd never really met a butch lesbian in my entire life. I was pretty green, I was coming from Noble Park, even though I was living in Elson because I mean, this is all still a bit new to me. It was very new to me actually. And um Jan was there with her girlfriend, and I just thought that Jan was a bloke. And when she stood up and I saw that massive bust of it, I was just sort of completely overwhelmed. But but she was quite a character, Jan. I mean, in those days, she, um, she was starting to run dances. She'd, um, she was working for actually Tip Top Bakeries and one of those delivering bread, but she'd get half tanked and she'd always have somebody in the car with her that would be racing and dropping the bread off. She was... So, <laughs> just fun days. But, I mean, those were the days of dinner parties and lots of private parties, and there was groups that used to organise, like car rallies, and there was functions going, but like I said, they were closed. Yeah, absolutely. It was and kind of like, you know... Pokies, um, I, for a while, there was hosting this drag show at Annabelle's, which was, was a gay club called Blades, which is at Annabelle's Hotel in in the city, not that, it was virtually next door to the university club. It was a, and, um, but it was more like a talent quest show where I hosted it. And then um, I ran a venue at the Kuala Motoring up on the top floor that I called Pokies, which was the name that I originally was going to have for a coffee lounge because coffee lounges were quite popular in those days because some of you could go late because it was 10 o'clock closing, you know, for drinks and whatever else, pubs, and you could sit and have a coffee and chat with your friends, have a toasted sandwich or whatever. And I was going to open that in Dundas Place in Albert Park. I never got off the ground, so I'd... Um, opportunity came up to get this other place, and I wanted a name, so I just grabbed that name because I'd, I'd had it registered anyway. And then Jan used to come along, and Jan had sort of been out of running venues for a few years, and she'd approached me and said, look, um, with the following you've got and the following I've got, why don't we combine forces and do something you know, on, a, on a much larger scale? And I thought, oh, yeah, why not? You know, so it virtually, from my point of view, it started off as, as a venue for the end of the week where you just go sit down, watch a little show. I think there was five of us originally when we started, you know, two, two drag performers, myself and two male dancers. And... Um, it was going to be a quiet night, but it obviously took on a life of its own and it just grew and grew and grew. But, I mean, that was with the support of the people out there. I mean, the first night we closed the doors when we'd reached 300 people and, and yet in its heyday two years later, when we had a cast of 10, we were getting 1,000 people through the doors. It was amazing, wasn't it? So tell us about pokies and also pennies. They alternated one each week, yeah? No, so, no, 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 no. This is where the confusion comes. Pokies was every Sunday. What pennies was was a girls' bar that Penny and Jan ran together. The only connection with pokies was the fact that Jan was my partner in pokies and she was Penny's partner in Penny's bar. Um, and it was sort of like a brother and sister thing, but they were never under the one... Roof. But I mean, we used, because it was all done at the Prince of Wales, we used to share the expenses of the hiring of the sound equipment and a couple of other things. But they were two separate venues. So tell us about Pokies. It was at the Prince of Wales and it went for a very long time. It went for decades. How long? 14 and a half wow. years. Wow. Wow. So and we- it actually had a big 
reunion night in 2002 at the Palace Nightclub, and I, I did everything as a in a concert format. They had the big screens either side of the stage, and each of the girls had their own video history. And it was the most amazing night. I mean, here it is, it's 30 years this year since we've closed, and people still talk about it. You know, there's, there's a lot of us out there still breathing that remember, and it was a big part of, of our, you know, our 20s, our 30s, and our 40s. Absolutely. Now, of course, you did so much uh, in the community for the community when HIV AIDS hit in the early 1980s and the community was organising around that. Tell us about the work you did, the fundraising and just the community education that you did. I mean, it's an extraordinary history. Well, the compares and the shows in those days were always relaying the latest information we have. I mean, as a new owner... Jan and I got to go to the original meetings when we realised that there was a problem out there and were around when they'd actually originally formed the VAC, which is the Victorian AIDS Council. Um, we were always informed as to what the latest treatments were or, you know, whether they need funds for this or whether they needed people out in Fairfield or people that were living on their own that needed TVs or microwaves or something to make their life easier. We... We would go to different businesses and ask them whether they could donate gifts. We had a big fundraiser at Pogies where we brought Ada Buttrose down from Sydney because at that stage she was the government representative or head of, the, of their AIDS program. And um, But we made sure that the money that we raised actually went to rural country Victoria, you know, rather than everything being centred just in the capital cities. Um but whatever benefit was that we put our hand up for, I mean, you know, this is for our friends. And, and that time, I mean, Melbourne has always been a friendly city. It had been like the dinner party city, the private party. If you didn't know everyone that came back there, when the pubs closed at 10, at least you knew who they came with. So, I mean, with everything that happened and people being in a similar situation, it actually made the bonding a lot closer. And this is what made pokies so important too, because they could come on a Sunday night have great music, catch up with all their friends, bring their family along if they wanted to sit down and see a really great show and just take some of that pressure off them, but um, still be informed as to what was going on out there. So, uh, but, I mean, you know, we also did benefits to help um, get um, Troy Melbourne off the air. You know, us performers have a saying amongst ourselves, you know, you expect to do a certain number of benefit shows, whether it was Telb also... Most of the fundraisers, I mean, we, we did all of that free of charge. Just it wasn't to promote our names. We didn't need, we didn't certainly didn't do it for publicity. We just did it because it was a way that we could help out. Absolutely. And you worked with so many incredible people and you did so many amazing shows. Is there any one show that you did that's particularly etched in your memory? Well, I had different ones I like for different reasons. I mean, Terry Tinsel and John used to come with some amazing shows, but my personal type of show is more like I like a piano better with a band. You know, I like a more uh, traditional, a cross between a drag, what I would call a drag show and a stage show, rather than, I mean, I mean we did a lot of theme shows. We did like Winter Wonder Drag. Julian had made the most amazing production costumes for us. Um, we did amazing shows like The Guardian, The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it's just years and years, and the shows kept getting bigger and bigger. 
the technology got better, the videos got better. Instead of moving something, anything that was glitter, leaving black marks across the screen, you could get rid of. Um, and we had the crowd on site encouraging us every week. So, And it also opened up the opportunity for people like Laurie Lane to do the sets, Pete McBean to do the wigs, people like, like John Minogue who's coming and choreographed, Neville Burns, who was a brilliant dancer, Peter Curran were choreographers of the show. So... So it involved a lot of other people. We also had a piano bar. If you didn't want to dance on the disco, you'd go in the piano bar and have a sing-along, whether it was Pat Murphy, whether it was John O'Hare, or whether it was Will Convoys playing. Um, and then we had a smaller bar that we called the Can Bar. So we had three areas, like a chill area, a more relaxed area, disco. We always had the most popular music. We had Central Station on site. They were always giving us the latest music that was coming out and they were always very generous whenever we were having a special night, a birthday night, an awards night. Um, they were always very generous with donations. And in those days, all the venue owners got on really well, you know, we'd go out and have lunch once a month and sit around and just discuss what was happening. And those were in the days when you'd go out to lunch at 12 and the last one had probably dragged themselves away from the table at about four in the afternoon. But... Um, yeah, they were pretty heady days, the 70s. And, of course, in the 80s, everybody had money. You know, you were out five, six nights a week. And that's unfortunately, was when the AIDS epidemic hit. But, but instead of breaking us as a community, it actually strengthened the bonds. And that's working with amazing people. Well, I've been blessed, you know, and I've got to work because of my profile at Pokies. And, you know, I've got to work in Adelaide. I've got to work in Perth. I've got to work in Sydney. Canberra, Tasmania. I've also worked straight clubs, which is not what your show's about, but, you know, you used to compare lots of hens nights and male strip shows and, and those Mr. New Australia quests every year. Um, so I've been most, most of, certainly most of Southern Australia. Um, it's been a very interesting life. Um, I don't know what else I can tell you. Well, I mean, you've got just an incredible career still, Doug. That's what I find fascinating about oh, you. Your well, longevity is still going. Um, tell us about DT. I was bemoaning the fact to a few of my friends, and they'd obviously felt the same way, that there was nowhere for people of a certain age group to go. It's not like we're brain dead, we're old, we're past it. We still love to catch up with our friends. We'd like to know what's going on, but the fantasy ball wasn't on anymore. The alternative ball wasn't on. Queen's birthday picnic wasn't on. A lot of these functions, you know, that you'd look forward to, you know, three or four really big events a year. And it got to the stage that most of us were catching up with one another at our friends' funerals. And I just, I'd gone to a wake for Tootsie at DT's. Friend of mine, very good friend of Tootsie's, was holding it there. And... He didn't know how to sort of MC or comp. He'd ask me if I'd host the afternoon. I said yes. And a couple of the older queens got up and did a couple of numbers as a tribute to Tootsie. And I thought, now this could time with my idea because there's a need for this. I was looking around. I thought, these people would obviously appreciate a chance to have somewhere to meet. And on the other hand, it gives a chance for some of the performers who don't have that, that stage to get on to come out and perform. So I saw it as a win-win thing, and I just took off like wildfire. So last Sunday of every month, um, I host the show, not because I have to 
to the host, but that's that's that is the draw. I mean, I'm realistic enough to do, and that's what I have to do to get people there. I'm more than happy, but it's but it's a very popular, friendly, relaxed afternoon. So, I'm as I call it, back in harness. But I'm very direct with the crowd. I told them exactly why I started it up, and they agreed with me 100. percent So, this is another time I'd hit the button right on the head. Absolutely. Doug Lucas, it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, if people want to catch you perform the last Sunday of every month at DT's in Richmond. Club there, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex, and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.